Welcome to The Athletic MBA Show, Monday through Friday, on The Athletic Podcast Network. Coming up on today's show, special guest Ben Falk from cleaningtheglass.com. I believe there was a trade, so we'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about how to actually watch the game. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour. With Mo DeKeel. Are you ready to be entertained? And Seth Partnow. Hello and welcome to the Athletic NBA Show. Uh, this is Nerder She Wrote, you know, because it's Friday. You guys know by now. I'm Dave. We got Seth and Mo here. And uh, joining us from cleaningtheglass.com, former 76ers front office, Trailblazers front office. I think those are the only teams you work for, right, Ben? Yeah. Ben Falk, welcome. This is this is probably overdue as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Seth took too long to to ask you to come on the show. I'm blaming we've Seth. been we've been we've been begging we've been begging Seth Ben and and, and he's just been very much going no <laughs> I'm not gonna have this the, the rivalry is coming out so, pretty early in this show <laughs> oh yeah that's what it's all that's what it's all about uh you know so obviously huge trade yesterday we're, we're recording this on Thursday um obviously released on Friday, but huge trade yesterday in the NBA, the James Harden trade that we've all kind of been waiting for. The other big pieces in this, Oladipo going to Houston, Karis LeVert going to Indiana, Jared Allen going to Cleveland. Jared Allen's a big piece to me. Um, But obviously the one that that really matters uh, for the season at large is James Harden. And Ben, I'm going to start with you. The number one thing that I keep seeing and I, I believe this is a myth at this point, and we probably should just stop saying it is there's only one basketball. Is that is that a real problem or or is that just we're just trying to find problems with every single situation? So I think there's a few things to unpack there. Um, this is actually something one of the first articles I wrote on cleaning the glass. Um, I looked into this and there's two things. One is there's players that sometimes are valuable because they can create shots. And so their value, there's diminishing returns on that value um, if you put more of them together. But there's ways that that doesn't exactly, you know, it doesn't play out as much, which is, for example, you can stagger their minutes, their injuries. Um, It's always good to have that kind of redundancy for teams to survive whatever matchups they might face. Um, So that's one way it kind of cancels out. And the other way, the other question is just how well, how good are they playing off the ball? Um, And that has a lot to do with shooting, of course. And when you look at these three players, obviously they're all, they're all elite shooters. And so that worry goes away. Um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about this specific situation, if you have a situation where you have, you know, three creators, three high level ball handlers who their value comes from being on the ball and they're not great off the ball, that's when it becomes a little more fraught. So the, this is one of those places where there is sort of the volume versus efficiency trade-off is it's been noted, you know, for the last three years, oh, Chris Paul and and, and uh, James Harden should work well together because both are both are good, you know, catch and shoot, both have good accuracy on catch and shoot threes. Um, at least in James Harden's case, there's the the, the unwillingness to, to do that way, to do that. Uh, Moe's pointed this out a bunch, the way he – when he over the last couple of years, when he doesn't have the ball, 
uh, or hasn't had the ball with the Rockets, he kind of deactivates and hangs out near half court and you can't really space the floor from there. Um, so that's – it's not – with with him and Irving especially, it's not the question of ability so much as sort of willingness to, to you know, uh, stand productively, I guess. Okay, but didn't that work? Chris Paul and James Harden worked. It worked. They, they, it worked till it they didn't. almost got it to worked. the. It worked, it worked the, until Chris Paul got hurt. I mean, I, I just they almost made the finals with that team, and, and, then, and, then, and then the next year it didn't. And the it next didn't year, at all. And 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 it, it all comes down to the players, right? Sure. And I think that's kind of the point of it. Is you have to get the players to believe that there's more than one ball. Or however, I'm sure there's not a smart way. There's a smarter yeah. way that one of you guys can say that than me. But the the fact is, it's your style of play. Like with mm-hmm. James Harden, I mean, there's half a ball out there. It's all James. And you might get just a quarter of it. You know, somebody else playing with it might, we'll get, we'll get a touch here and there. I mean, guys have talked about it, right? Where it's so difficult knowing I can go four possessions without touching the ball and then expected to go play high-level defense and all of those things. It all comes down to your offensive system, and that's what makes this trade so fascinating because Brooklyn runs a system of movement, of cutting, of off-ball stuff and actions like that. And if James falls into that and he 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 falls in and folds in and runs and does all those things, this, this has a chance of really working. If he goes well, back and just, I'm chilling, it's a problem. Well, and Kevin Durant has actually been really good off the ball, I thought, this year. Um, Kyrie has the ability, and and he showed a lot of burst, I thought, coming through screens, coming off of screens this year early on. I, I expected that to to go away as the season progressed. And you know, has, everyone starts out happy, reasons. right? <laughs> well, <laughs> for different reasons. Well, but but there's there's that aspect of it as well. Like, they got hardened. That's a little bit of Kyrie insurance, um, you know, given the current situation. To a certain degree, I mean, this is a, a all chips pushed into the middle of the table. I mean, they uh, Mo mentioned this on our little, um, you know, rapid reaction pod yesterday. They don't control their own first round draft pick until 2028. That, That's absurd. that is a really long time. I mean, Ben, like asset, asset management, uh, I know that that's something that you, you pay a lot of attention to. Um, if you can, if you can get a James Harden, that's justifiable, right? So this is where um, I think that the public discourse is fascinating around this, um, and a lot of this is informed by my experience with the Sixers, um, which is that you find that a lot, I think media and the fans in general often operate with this idea of the goal is a championship, and that's the only goal. And we should do what it takes to get there and not necessarily acknowledge that, te- you know, within teams, whether it's executives, whether it's ownership, that the goals are potentially different. And that dictates a lot of, you know, what you want to do, what your strategy is. Um, what is the right trade off to increase your odds a certain amount to win a championship? That's a really hard question to answer. How much money should you spend? Um, you know, what type of risk are you willing to take? And so, you know, from Brooklyn's perspective, if that's the mandate, if that's the goal, say, let's take a risk. And I actually think it's a really interesting uh, parallel to my time in Philly, which is, if you think about it, they're taking risk of being really bad on the back end to have to have a really good shot of a championship now. Um, You know, what we were doing in Philly is kind of was kind of the flip. Let's take a risk now and potentially be bad now to win a championship in the future. 
both of those strategies are dictated by having very high level goals, which is to say that you really want to win a championship. You really want to maximize your odds of winning a championship. That's not for everyone. That's not for every franchise. That's not for every owner because it comes with significant downside. Um, but there are places that want to do it. Sometimes it works out. You know, you could say that, you know, the trade for Kawhi by Masai Ujiri in Toronto, that was an example of a high risk play that worked out. Um, sometimes it doesn't. And then you get stuck and then you, you know, you become a laughingstock for a while, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways in a competitive enterprise like the NBA, that you're not going to have that reward without risk. I want to just push back just slightly on the Kawhi Leonard trade being being risky. To, I understand what you mean, but to me that was a very calculated risk because they got off the DeMar DeRozan contract. Like they were actually they were clearing their books to get Kawhi Leonard, and if Kawhi stays, that's great. Like that's wow, you really struck gold there. But if he leaves, hey, your cap space is in like your cap is in really good shape. Whereas this is you know they've given up the ability to actually improve this roster. Like they have no assets. And so when I look at, at this team, which I I'm guessing expects to make the conference finals or the finals this year, how do they fill the gaps that they very clearly have? I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. I've had people mention to me buyouts. Well, when is a buyout guy aside from Marco Bellinelli and Ursan Ilyasova ever done anything in the playoffs? And they didn't even really do that much. They had like a couple of good games. Like buyout guys typically don't contribute. So how does this team do more than put a, you know, they can score 130 a game, but I think they're going to give up 129. I mean, Seth said that yesterday. <laughs> uh, like what was it? A half point differential. Oh, the, <clears throat> yeah. For, for the, the, the all time like leader in, in, in the three point era and like total points per game, it was the, the Nuggets scored 126 and a half and gave up 126 per game. And I, th- I th- we're going to see it, the half point in a given game isn't possible, but I think we're going to see a lot of games in the, in the, uh, the, the mid 200s total, uh, with, with this, with this Nets roster. So, so what tools are left from a team building perspective? Are there any? I, I'll just jump in and say, you know, before you even get to the, the team building, um, you know, I think sometimes there's a lot, and this is kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of assumptions that are made about the way that players have played is the way that they will continue to play. Um, you know, basketball is a very contextual sport. And one of the things that I think is really in the Nets' favor here is that it seems, at least from the outside, right, it seems clear that these three players want to play together and, you know, are willing to buy into what it takes to win at a high level to do that. And so when we're, we were talking earlier about James Harden playing off the ball, this presumably was his chosen destination, right? And you would think that that meant he knew what he was getting into and he should be willing to adjust his play as much as he can, um, you know, to do what needs to be done to win. Now we'll see if that happens and there's lots of ways that it can go off the rails. But, you know, I think that that's one thing to think about in terms of, you know, how they end up um, performing as a unit is one theory is as they all are able to, reduce their usage, you have more energy to expend on the defensive end. Um, you know, we'll see if that ends up playing out. I mean, a lot of defense is not just effort and energy, but also habit and technique. Um, but it is conceivable. It's conceivable that you could see, you know, a different type of player, a different type of play from these three players, um, just because by coming together, it enables them to do different things. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a really important point. And I think that's something we're going to, that's the honeymoon period though, right? Like it's going to look great for the first few weeks, you know, um, uh, when, whenever Kyrie comes back, um, you know, and they're going to be all chilling and lovey dovey and stuff and high fiving. But then there's, then comes the hard stuff, you know, when, when you are struggling or something like that. And James wants to go ISO. I mean, remember in Golden State, that game when, Draymond Green was screaming for the ball at the end of the game or, or, or wanting it was against Memphis. I think it was, it was very early in KD's career and KD wanted to go ISO and Draymond had to yell at him basically going like, that's not what we do here. Right? Like we move the ball and all that stuff. There's going to be a lot of that stuff. And it's God, James Harden has been playing this style for what, eight years now at this point. Like that's a hard thing to break. And, and he can do it early but there's going to be that nagging, come on, I just want that ISO, you know, just let me go clear out and things like that. And that's going to be the challenge that Steve Nash is going to have to figure out, you know, how to incorporate all of these things. I think there's going to be times on the court where Harden is going to get to ISO because the other two guys aren't going to be on the court, you know, or, or playing around with all of those things. But it's it's just to me, like, I think we're going to see some of that, but it's such a challenging thing. I don't know what happens. When when things get hard, like what do they do, you know, and and what do they revert back to? Because it feels like all Harden knows is controlling the possession at the end of the games. KD and Kyrie didn't play together last year, so that's going to be a whole other thing. All three of these guys are used to having the ball at the end of games. How are they going to handle that in in crunch situations and all of that that goes with it? I I think you brought up a really interesting name there, Mo, and that's Steve Nash because we think about kind of some of the low person, the low player movements, highly ball dominant offenses and how, you know, uninclusive they, they seem to be for, okay, PJ Tucker, just stand in the corner, don't do anything. Um, if you go back and watch those Suns teams, they actually were not, uh, that, that Nash was on when he was, you know, winning MVPs, they weren't super high movement. He had the ball a lot, but they still managed to feel inclusive. And in a, a large part, I think Nash was given this job because of his sort of uh, emotional intelligence. And so maybe he is a key piece in kind of helping to balance the way these guys want to play with also it fitting into a team concept that's, that is, uh, um, uh, acceptable and, and rewarding to everybody on, on, uh, you know, all the relevant rotation players in the team. Um, so in maybe in some ways it's, it's almost playing into their coaches strengths. Well, and let's not forget that they also have Mike D'Antoni on staff, who is somebody that James Harden clearly trusts. So I think that they probably have a jump start versus some other team that might have traded for him. You know, and I think Philly may have had that too because you know of the relationship that he has with Daryl. Um, but there is another side to this this trade, and it's the Houston side. Um, I mean, of course there are other teams, but Houston being the most interesting. Uh, they get Victor Oladipo who can be a free agent this summer. Uh, they get Dante Exum, who I think is on an expiring as well, and Rodion Kuritz, who is also an expiring. So uh, they have ostensibly cleared their books quite a bit. I, I believe that they can wind up with $21 million in space if they just let everybody walk. Um, and they got every single Brooklyn pick for the next eight years, or at least control of it because of the swaps. This is a similar situation to a certain degree to the one that you were in in, in Philadelphia, Ben. Um, are they processing? Is that is that what we're looking at? Is this the you know pre-process? 
So I, I think it goes to what I was saying earlier, which is it, it depends on what the goals are and those come from ownership. The, that's decided, you know, within the organization and, um, you know, how, how do you want to go? How much are you pursuing that championship? And what are you willing to sacrifice to get there? Um, you know, I think, you know, under previous ownership, it was made clear that tanking was not an option, right? They weren't going to be bad ever. And so the question was, how do you get good? How do you acquire a star without doing so through the draft? And that was a lot of the, um, you know, the moves that they made to eventually acquire James Harden. So you know, you kind of reset that if that is still the mandate, obviously it's now new ownership, but if that's still the mandate, then you have to find creative ways to acquire that star. Um, is Houston a big enough market? Is that a destination market for stars to go to? You know, you have to answer all those questions. Um, but in many ways, you know, what we did in Philly was just a question of how, what is the best way given the current roster, given the current setup, given everything that we have, you know, on the books, uh, what's the best way to maximize our championship odds? If that is the number one question in Houston, then, um, you know, they'll have to try to answer that, but that doesn't necessarily dictate the same strategy or the same uh, path to get there. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, it, it's the, the, what I like what Houston did, though, is I don't think they're processing, Dave. I think they're reloading their, their asset cupboard because it's been left so bare. You know, they gave up a bunch for Russell Westbrook. You know, then they gave up even more draft assets in the the trade to bring in Covington, you know. And then when you look at the move since Rafael Stone has taken over, they moved Covington, got two first-round picks, sent one of them to, to Detroit. Now they've gotten basically all of Brooklyn's picks uh, for a while and then have a Bucks pick that they're getting from Cleveland in this part of the trade. Like, I feel like they're using this to, to reload their assets. And it's not just draft assets, it's trade assets. It's something that can help them push over the top to go for trades and make moves. I kind of like the team that they have now. I don't think they're like a, a contender or anything like that, but I think Oladipo is going to fit in really well with John Wall, who looks like he's playing. I mean, he looks like he's playing, has recovered from his injuries and looks really good. I think it's going to, we're going to find out more about Christian Wood and whether this is real or not. You know, DeMarcus Cousins looks good. I like what they have in Eric Gordon. I don't know what they're going to do with PJ Tucker, if they're going to move him or not, but they have interesting pieces right now. And, and at least for this season, we'll see how it plays out. And if they re-sign Oladipo and all that fun stuff. But I just like the fact that they're, they're, building their pool again. Like, I don't think they're going to make all of these picks. Those are going to be picks that are going to be used in trades to, to gain another asset down the road. I don't think they're, I don't think they're about to tank. Although you never know with uh, Mr. Uh, Tillman Fertitta there, but I think they're, they're in that process now of, you know, Hey, we're just building, rebuilding our, our, our assets so that if we need to make a move, we can. Side note, uh, facilitating trades and, and and trading with super teams seems like a pretty good way to jumpstart a rebuild because you can you can get draft picks from teams that are that are in championship mode. Uh, and it seems like those teams really fall off a cliff when guys age or leave, or, you know, because of the, the 
awful cap sheet that they're usually stuck in. Uh, Seth, we we talked a lot before the season about what the Rockets were going to look like. And uh, since then, they traded Russell Westbrook. They traded James Harden. Uh, they, they got John Wall. They signed Boogie Cousins. They signed Christian Wood. Uh, P.J. Tucker is like the only guy. P.J. Tucker and Eric Gordon, I guess Daniel House, are the only guys really left over from from last season. Uh, it's basically a completely new team and a new identity. I think Steven Silas is doing a pretty good job with how he's got got them moving the ball in the non-hardened minutes. It's looked good so far. It, it may work to be like a passably decent team. Are they going to make the play in, you think? Man, this <laughs> this is a question that aside from about like three teams on the top and the bottom, I don't know. Like this, this season in general, yeah, right. this, this season in general has been has been so weird. Um, this is something I, I wrote about earlier this week, but but um, most seasons, even by this early into the season, in terms of games played, the league has somewhat stratified into like you have about the top ten teams that are on a fifty win or higher pace. You've got teams in, about ten teams in the middle, and you've got ten teams that are on a thirty five win or lower pace. Uh, as of earlier this week, there were seventeen teams. In that middle, in that middle band, and I haven't, I haven't checked today to see to see where we're at, but that I think that just, you know, you catch a team on a on a given night, it's like wow, Cleveland looks pretty good, Charlotte's frisky, and then you look and they're you know a game under five hundred, um, because they've you know right. they've they've had games they're frisky, they've dropped a game here, they've had some you know injuries or absences, so sure they might like there's <laughs> no if there's i mean you know in in the west like the like the only team that we're probably like probably not on is minnesota right and and other than that that's yeah, pretty safe like to the say two that, the two la teams yeah. are going to be pretty good minnesota is going to be in the lottery and i don't I mean, hell, Oklahoma yeah. City's frisky. Like they're, <laughs> they're too good games. to tank, man. That, like I, they got stuck with so many good players, and I hate to even say stuck, but I, I don't know that Oklahoma City even cares if they're if they're bad or not. I, I mean, they they've got too many good players, and they're going to get more draft picks. That's that's what I wonder when I'm looking at Houston. Right? Are they going the OKC route, where maybe Oladipo isn't really there that long? If they don't see him as a long-term piece, maybe they're out there shopping him for a first-round pick, trying to see if there's a team that wants to take him. And, of course, it to me, it depends on if they want to re-sign him this summer. Some team, for sure, is interested in Victor Oladipo. So they, they have an asset. They could add more to the war chest. I think Houston, they made out pretty well in this trade. I, I don't know about you guys, but it, it looks pretty good on paper. I mean, I think the everyone is sort of in agreement in general that the that um, they, they successfully got the you know the going rate for a top twenty ish player is all of your draft assets, and they successfully got that from 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 Brooklyn. And the kind of the interesting decision is preferring Oladipo to, to Karis Levert, um, who I think that you know just from a player and asset value standpoint, I think most people would probably prefer Levert. And that's why I think that preference is, is a bit why at least you read tea leaves and you think that they're maybe going for like a full turnover rather than than you know trying to, to pivot into you know a different kind of competitiveness. And you know, jumping off that, I, I kind of wanted to ask Ben ab- about this um, in terms of of you're at a certain point with the team. 
how do you think you go about making that decision of, of, okay, we had this strategy and things have happened and we have certain, certain aspect asset base now that is different than, than, uh, what we had before, you know, how do you go about that decision of, of flipping that switch and, and, and doing something different strategically, or even starting to have that conversation about, okay, we're at a different spot now. So our goals and, and tactics should change. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I think one of the reasons why you see from the outside that it often takes a change in management to pivot in strategy or those two things go together is that it is very difficult with the same group, um, whether it's the same coaching staff, the same front office executives to really kind of pull a 180, um, you know, and, and turn around or, or pivot in any kind of way. Um, and to do that with the same group, I think just, you know, you have to have some big kind of seismic moment, for example, your franchise player demanding a trade. Um, and you know, otherwise, cause I do think that there are a lot of teams that they're kind of on a path. It's not necessarily going the way that they want or expect. Um, but it's very hard to say like, Oh, this is the moment that we're deciding we're going to completely change course. And so instead you kind of tinker around the edges and you try to, you know, find opportunities, uh, to make the right move. Um, but it's, it's, you know, there's no obvious way to really make a big pivot, but in this case, you know, the Rockets were kind of handed that, um, you know, probably not their choice, but, um, there, there is a real difference. And now you have to sit down and have conversations. You have to have conversations, particularly with ownership, because that's where it all flows from. Um, you know, what, what are our goals here? What are we trying to do? Uh, you know, what can we not do? Where are the guardrails? Right. Um, and you know, what's the timeline look like all of that. And that those goals then kind of filter down into dictating the strategy that you choose, uh, to try to get there as, as best as possible. And I think that has, that has implications kind of up the ladder, but also strong implications down the ladder. Something kind of I experienced in, in my time in Milwaukee as we came from, went from being kind of a middling team to a contending team is, is, you know, what you're looking for in players. Uh, obviously you're always looking for the, 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 the top end talent, but if you're looking to go from, you know, 40 wins to 50 wins, you know, you're just looking to add good players. When you're going from, you know, 50 or high high 50s wins to winning a championship, the lens you're looking at, guys, is is different. And it is, I think it's pretty easy to not realize you have to, you know, make that switch in what you're evaluating. And, and so that's where, you know, having those conversations, okay, this is what we care about now, um, you know, I would imagine that the player personnel people in Houston have been looking for certain things and now you're looking for different things and it's it's easy to sort of forget that uh, as you're making these big pivots. It's a great point. And one of the challenges that I've experienced is often these kinds of conversations aren't necessarily made explicit. And so sure. not everyone in the organization knows or, or I mean – it happens kind of subtly or, you know, behind the scenes or it shifts in one person's mind or the top executive's mind or whatever. And then you end up having these conversations about players and you're talking past each other. And it's like, you know, one person's like, I love this guy. and I don't like him. And you realize you have the same evaluation, but you're targeting different things. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's one of the things that fascinated me working for teams is just how difficult communication is. Um, you know, I had a coworker who often said like, it's all about definitions. Like you just, you know, whenever we disagree, the disagreement's mostly about definitions and not actually evaluation. Um, 
and so you know i think that kind of communication it, it can be a real challenge inside of teams <laughs> i mean communication is the end all and be all of everything right i mean from everything from the players on the court to the front office and everybody being on the same page like we always talk about it right the best was, organizations mm-hmm. are perfectly in line you know down from ownership all the way down to their players they all know what they're looking for they're all on the same page all want the same goals and 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 are moving that direction and it's and it's hard trying to get you know what would we say like a hundred something people on the same boat and pushing in the same direction always makes it a challenge and i think that's kind of the biggest thing and i think that's you're going to have arguments and disagreements in those or even within those organizations you know and things like that it's it's how do you move on past that and 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 everything that comes after that and then all the way down to the players being on the same page and i think those are the things that we, at least i look for when i'm watching organizations is like all right well where's the disconnect is it the ownership is it management and the coaching staff or, or is it the coaches and the players? Like there's always some sort of disconnect somewhere with some of these bad teams. If you're playing the nerd or drinking game at home, uh, that was an organizational alignment mention. And we've got a double whammy because Seth's cat is the now cat made on, an appearance. on the yes, Zoom call. So yes. that's two drinks. Uh, but I, I like I like that you talked about the difference being. Uh, mostly about definitions. And, and I mean, it, it's probably true in everyday life as well, where where you have arguments is that typically, you know, you're agreeing with someone, you're just agreeing, it, you, you're just seeing things from a different perspective. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show is how we watch games, what we're looking for. And you have started at cleaningtheglass.com a video course, a written course on how to learn X's and O's, which to me, it's one of the great sort of uh, travesties of of the NBA is that they don't do a good enough job, in my estimation, on educating their audience about what they're watching. When you watch football and they've got all this time to break down every play, defense, offense, and there are so many high-level film breakdowns. And and to be honest, I think that it's, it's more entertaining when football does it because you usually have someone that's a lot more animated and they're going through and then and then you have someone yelling, boom, every time there's a hit. And we can't do that because basketball doesn't work that way. But I do think that that the basketball fan is sort of left behind to a certain degree, in particular with how complicated modern NBA offense and defense is. I've talked to people quite a bit, novices at basketball, you know, there are actions running away from the target, right? The the basketball hoop being the goal and you're running actions that are in opposite directions. And for someone that doesn't really know the sport, it's not like watching football. With football, I can point, here's the little area that you need to get into. And you're only going to go forward. Very, very rarely do you want to go backwards. If you're going backwards, you're definitely doing something wrong. So let's talk about how you actually watch the game, Ben, because I... I I am curious how a guy with your background who did not know X's and O's basically until you were coming into the league, like, how did you, how did you learn? I'm assuming that has informed this program. Yeah. Uh, you know, hundred percent. My experience was I loved the game. I was outside the game. I didn't play organized basketball. I wanted to be able to learn X's and O's. I wanted to learn, you know, the strategy of it and to be able to, to converse and, uh, analyze it at a high level and there were just no resources. Um, you know, this was 
say 15 ish years ago. Um, and that's changed as you have more and more people talking about X's and O's, um, you know, tweeting out great clips, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there still was no one stop shop for, okay, I don't know much. I like the game. I love the game. I don't know much. And I want to be able to understand it and be able to talk like a coach. Um, I, I love your point about football because that's something I've long thought is, you know, they talk about John Madden really explaining strategy to an audience using the telestrator, the Madden football games, and that educated a generation of football fans on the strategy. And now the strategy became part of being a fan. Um, I've often thought myself, and that's a lot of what I've tried to do at cleaning the glass is how do you create, how do you create narrative around strategy? Um, you know, I think oftentimes because it's hard to pick up on, it's not as static as football is where you have that opportunity to talk about it. Um, you end up with, you know, everyone wants narrative in sports. That's what drives it. And so you end up with people creating other narratives like, Oh, this player used to play for this team and now they're going back. You know, you create this, this kind of false drama, um, just because you need some sort of narrative to talk about it, as opposed to there's other narratives within the game. Um, you know, you might have a team that let's say, you know, the Pelicans who are all about packing the paint and, you know, they're going to give up lots of threes and how are they going to adjust against a team like Miami with great three point shooting? You know, that's an interesting strategic, uh, narrative pivot point to talk about and to watch for. Um, but it does require a certain level of understanding of X's and O's and an ability to watch for those things. My belief is that, you know, if, if announcers, if, if everyone on this podcast, if everyone can educate, you know, people, you know, try to share the knowledge and, and things that, that we know about the game and tweet out clips that we can have a more, you know, a fan base that is more into that strategic narrative um, and, you know, can appreciate the game for the strategy, um, not just kind of the off court drama or any of that. Um, and so, you know, that is a, a lot of what I want to do with this course. Um, you know, I tried to, it, it was a lot of work. It took a lot of time, sure, but the yeah, goal sure, was to, yeah. to kind of start from the beginning and build someone up. So, you know, if you don't have, if you don't know all that terminology, okay, let's start and explain it and, and walk people through, um, you know, from what a ball screen is to, you know, even getting to something where, you know, here's a spread pick and roll, here's a span or stack pick and roll. Here's, you know, how pick and roll defense works. You know, here's tag responsibilities. Um, here's how teams counter aggressive pick and roll defense, you know, all of that where you can really kind of go down the line. And so then all of a sudden you see a team that's, you know, blitzing the pick and roll and, you understand, okay, this team's going now to short action to counter the blitz. Um, and that adds a different dimension to your watching and understanding of the game. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out, birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids and Honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys. And Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, 
or marathon training all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's great. I mean, I've we've talked about it a million times about the uh, the whole thing of just can we got to be better fans and, te- and we got to teach the game better. We've done it with all the yeah. broadcasting well, complaints and stuff like that. Everything's more fun when everyone knows what's happening, right? Like the conversation is elevated. It's it you know, it's like what we do here. Uh, and I'm not saying that that we're going to take NBA fans and make them be like people who work in basketball. But you can at least – I mean, when you look at NFL fans and the level of competency in in the basic on-field action, it's night and day compared to the NBA where you have – I mean, there are, there are uh, you know, there are people who think that the Clippers are running triangle. And I still have yet to see them run a single triangle set. They, they haven't. Yeah. Okay. And, and- – yeah. And we got and we got to stop and we got to stop trying to compare it to football because they have such the advantage Absolutely. Absolutely. of it being a, a, a end of each play yeah, yeah. No, no, and no. then it taking another minute and a half for the next play in to the come broadcast, up so they're able to do it. You know, but, I don't think but, it's possible to do it in a broadcast, Mo. Well, it's it's in the breaks. It's in the coming back from mm-hmm. a timeout instead of spending whatever the the three minutes before you the the play begins breaking down where. All the trades or all the rumors or whatever, they do a uh, a quick hit on something, you know, that happened in this game or whatnot. There's there's ways to do it. They used to do it. When I was watching games during the pandemic, the old games, you would see it. I have a clip sitting Mike on my Fratello. computer of a coach. Yeah, the czar of the telestrator, all of that. But not just him. There was a bunch of stuff. They used to do it. It's 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 a level of interest and stuff. And that's why things like what Ben's doing is so important because it can try to elevate that for fans because it isn't that easy in the broadcast to do it but there's ways to do it and i think you can find the opportunity to do it and ultimately i think you know that the most common question i get asked is how i watch games and the the one thing i just tell people all the time is usually i watch the off ball action more than on the ball because that's where you get to see most of the stuff happen and the the screenings and the and the movements and who's moving and what's open or who's not moving and, and and why defenses are able to clog the lanes and things like that. It's the off ball movements and, and and just that action alone can tell you so much about the game. And I think that's something where fans got to start. And I will say, you know, one thing that I write about, um, you know, in the course is that it's hard for anyone live to see everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, when you analyze a game, you have to, have recorded film or a DVR and be able to rewind and watch the same play over and over again. And I have some quotes, you know, from great coaches, from great basketball minds. And they're talking about how, you know, even the best coaches, they have to break down the film. They have to study the film. They're not going to catch it all live during a game. It's just a limit of human perception to be able to see everything that's going on with 10 players in the ball at all times. But I do think once you start to learn these concepts and, you know, so someone like Mo who understands all of those concepts, there's a principle in psychology called chunking, um, which is this idea that you can take, you know, 
basic concepts and put them together and you become more uh, fluent with them. So the classic example that they use is they say, um, you know, if you have a chess master and you give them a, a random chess board um, and you ask them to reconstruct it, if the board is completely random, they do no better than and the average person. If the board looks like something that could be from a game, they're able to reconstruct the board much better because they chunk it up into these various pieces that in their mind, um, you know, have something, have some meaning attached to it. And I think the same thing is true with basketball. If you understand, if you don't, if you don't have any understanding of what's going on in the court, it looks like a bunch of people running around and all kinds of crazy action. And it's going to be impossible to process. If instead you have understanding of a chunk of what a spread pick and roll is and you know what a down screen is and these kinds of things and you know okay hey you know this team then ran a down screen into a spread pick and roll now you have two chunks and it's a little bit easier to process and to see and to understand and that allows you to catch a little bit more live understand a little bit more live um and yet even then to really study analyze and break something down even the best basketball analysts, even the best coaches need the film, need to rewatch to really be able to process. I, I complain yeah, a lot. A lie about, they say. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, I complain a lot about having to talk about a game that I just watched because if I, if I can't sit on synergy and rewatch three or four clips that I really need to see, I feel like I just don't know enough. Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of truth in what coaches say when it's like, no, I got to go back to the film, you know, and and watch it because there's a small nuance, you know. It, I've been in the film room, I've been on the court when Pop has yelled at a guy for missing a rotation, and then we watch that film in the film room the next day, and Pop realizes, oh no, this is what happened, and you know has to go back. And so it's in that moment, it's a, a, a quick action, you know, and, and just think about it from the the coaching perspective and just their view of where they're sitting, they're not going to necessarily be able to see everything in that sense. And that's, and that's the, the challenge with all this. And that's why the the film study of everything is so important, you know, and you were able to catch games. I mean, I'm always behind in games cause I'm always trying to watch, you know, I'll see something. I have to rewind the play a couple of times to just see it. it it's, and it's so, so much when we're watching the game, so much of our perception of the game is affected by whether the ball goes in or not. So, you know, it's, oh, that, just think about the clips you see, yeah. right? Like, oh, they ran a beautiful play and he made the yeah. shot. But and, there were plenty of beautiful right. plays that are missing. Yeah. Well, and also it's a. The cat. The cat's making noise, man. The no, cat. it's a kid. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was, I was giving the kid cover. I knew it was the kid, yeah. dude. I was trying uh, to help the kid it, out. Uh, no, the, the, and it. it so much of like this is great offense we ran is a guy just banged a contested three pointer, and it's like was that was that great offense or is, is that like you you know it, it in you know in, in poker terminology it's a coin flip right you you there's all in hand of like a like two overcards versus a pair it's like okay about half the time one guy wins half the time the other guy it doesn't change how well they played it's that that situation where you see like a a defender flying at a at a you know a three-point shooter and gets pretty close to it the ball goes in or it doesn't what happened before then to generate that um that look doesn't doesn't change doesn't change in how well it was executed based on whether the ball goes in or not but it's in especially watching live and where we're so focused on who's winning the game who won the game uh, that has a tremendous impact on our perception of of who played well and who didn't. 
Well, and also there's a difference between watching like an advanced scout where you're really paying attention to the X's and O's and then watching like player personnel sort of uh, to, to inform your opinion on on different players. I, I watched I watched some clips last night. Someone put together of Kevin Durant <laughs> and it was, you know, he made like, I don't know, 10 shots in the clip. And the, my takeaway was, oh, you know, he's not getting the same separation that he used to. And the yeah, the ball's going in because Kevin Durant can hit tough shots. But the thing that that stood out to me when I was looking at that stuff, those isolated clips was, wow. Uh, okay. So this is a diminished to a certain degree, Kevin Durant, whether that's Achilles or, or just age or whatever, I don't know, but there is a huge difference between those two. And I'm assuming all three of you guys have, have done all three, right? Or all. Yeah. Both I, of those. I've, I've hate having to scout in games. <laughs> it was always hard because you're always so dependent on, on seats and stuff like that, but that's a whole other story, but it is a different mindset, you know, doing the advanced scout, doing the personnel scout and, and, you know, just watching your own team and, and, and preparing for that sense. It's a, it's a challenge in, in those regards. And that's why it's also three different positions. So <laughs> should, should we, I have a question. Should we let people in on the, Okay, go no, ahead. There, so there's there's it's almost kind of easy, easier when you're watching the game to pay where you're going in. I am looking for this. And then you you maybe you you <laughs> there's <clears throat> excuse me. There's some biases. You they can't blame no, the kids there's, on that. There, there's one. some can't biases the you fall into <laughs> where if you're looking for something, you tend to find it. But it's easier to watch for. OK, I'm going to watch how they're defending the pick and roll. You can you, you if you're you're right. watching that intently, you can pick it up. How do you guys, if you're just watching a game and you have no sort of preconceived thing I'm looking for, how what helps you pick up on things to, you know, that you want to go back and look for more after the game? Well, so one thing I would say is I often try to have something I'm looking for, even if it's something small, right? So, you know, I'll look up the stats or I'll know something about the teams going in. You know, so as an example, I, you know, I brought the the Pelicans defense earlier. I might notice in the stats, hey, they have you know very interesting statistical profile where they are really selling out to protect the rim. And now I want to see how are they doing that? What exactly does that look like? How are teams countering it? How are teams reacting? So I always think, and this is something you know, even that I wrote about in in our course is um, you know having a question going in often makes the analysis easier, better. Um, and then as you're watching there's oftentimes something happens and it'll mm-hmm. pop up and mm-hmm. that will spark a question in your mind. Um, you know, how is this? Someone hits a, a tough contested two that they normally don't hit. You are like, how is that? Pl- is that unique? Is that player shooting much better than I thought? Wh- whatever it is. And those kinds of things can spark further lines of analysis. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think it's a very different uh, process to watching when you have one specific thing you're looking for versus more exploratory. Yeah, for me, sometimes my favorite games, and this might go a little bit different than what Ben said, just because, but everybody's different. Sometimes my favorite game is not having a question going in because I will stumble upon something. Basketball is very interesting, you know, in that sense. And I'll be like, huh, that's an interesting wrinkle they've ran. Now that will lead to me going down a rabbit hole and being up at two in the morning and overdosing on synergy clips of trying to see how many times have they ran this wrinkle or was that new or, or whatnot and, and things like that. And sometimes it's, it's just having that kind of just almost that freedom to just sort of, let me just watch this game 
and see what happens and not have that kind of expectations. And there are times, and, and just by human nature, like, hell, when we all watch the Nets, when they have their guys, we're all going to be watching how they play offense. We're all going to be trying to figure out how they're defending. Like we have that. Mm-hmm. Those are questions we're just going to have inherently. But like some of the best times I've had and, and I've stumbled on some of the most interesting things is when I've watched games not with any sort of expectations and just let me just see what this team does. What's this team about? And this goes and, and, and I know I'm a little long winded here, but I'll be quick. It goes to a story of when I was working in junior college basketball and we had we were responsible for recruiting right and Seth just gave me a really weird face I was an associate head coach Seth give me some damn respect um and and we had to go recruit so I would always go to these high school games and then I would call the coach I'm like yo you got to come check out you know whatever Ven- Venice High they got this kid and he would start you guys I don't want to know anything else he says if I can't pinpoint when I go watch this kid play if I, he doesn't stand out what's the point right like I should be able to identify this kid just as easily. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work that well, way. Well, it doesn't but work for the NBA that like thought, that. You just, no, you, no, but, that's that, inefficient. but that thought process. Right. Yeah, but that thought process, right? Like that things are coming in without that expectations kind of just makes it a little bit easier sometimes in the analysis. So it's, I think it's just different per person mm-hmm. with how they want to approach things. Yeah, well, I know a lot of scouts who, you know, as they're going around looking at guys, find new guys to – to scout because they pop when they go to see someone, you know, I mean, you go to Kansas, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of big time recruits at Kansas and UNC. And so you may be going to see Cole Anthony, but you know, one of the other guys on the roster may be a guy that, that pops for you as a, maybe a second rounder, stuff like that. So you can't be completely narrow focused when you're out there, but at, at the same time, it's, I mean, there's 10 guys on the court and a basketball and a bunch of referees and it's, it's messy. So I like to have notes. If I don't have notes going in, I, I, I feel lost. I'm just watching the game. And then if, like you said, Ben, if something pops up for me, then, you know, I can go dig in further. But um, I always like to have notes. So as we wrap up, Ben, what we like to do every week is kind of tell everyone stuff that we're thinking about, you know, in the next week. Maybe stuff that we saw this week that we need to dig into further. So uh, I want to toss to you first for that because uh, – you're the guest, and we like to put people on the spot. Yeah, yeah. No warning whatsoever. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, Seth brought up earlier how crazy this early season has been. And you know, I, I'm kind of, I was actually looking this morning, um, just, you know, at cleaning the glass and, and the numbers there, and seeing how it's starting to shake out a little bit more toward expectations. You have some of these teams. Um, that weren't expected to be quite as good, kind of dropping a little bit. And you have some of the teams um, that were expected to be better rising a little bit and just trying to get, you know, a better sense. I mean, that's really what I'd look for is, is it going to be continued go in that direction or is this season really as unique as it maybe seemed at the start? Um, and obviously everything going on, you know, with the health and safety protocols and games postponed, and that's, that adds a layer of challenge there to any kind of analysis. Um, but I think it is interesting to see, you know, you start to look at, you know, say a Portland who got off to a rough start and all of a sudden you look at it and it's like, Oh, they're not doing quite as bad as you think. Or Dallas is somewhat similar. I think the top two point differentials in the league are the Lakers and Milwaukee, which is, you know, that's not super surprising. So 
you know, it's, it's starting to head back toward a direction that's a little bit more aligned with what our expectations were and seeing if it continues on that path versus, you know, throws us another curveball. Seth, Seth. Um, so I've, I've kind of been a little bit, the, the, every team is like, this team is interesting has kind of immediately kind of lost three in a row after I've, after I've said that. So, uh, this week's victim is the Charlotte Hornets. Um, I've, I've, Ooh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I, no, I've been, I've been, I've been enjoying watching them and they sneakily might be the most athletic, at least in, in terms of the rotation they're playing, they might be the most athletic yeah. team in the league. And so I'm really, I'm, I've really been in, enjoying watching them recently and, um, uh, LaMelo ball is good. Um, yeah, my, he is. I can't wait for I can't wait for Team PR staffs to start messaging you, Seth. Going like, don't, don't pick us this week. Don't pick us this you week. Know, You're killing us. You know, uh, I, I'm assuming Andre Drummond is is likely to be moved, um, and Charlotte is on my short list for him. I, I think that he could boost their defense enough that they they become pretty frisky uh, because of the way they play, and they're I mean extremely athletic. Mo. I'm actually watching the Toronto Raptors. This is amazing. This is a team that's two and eight, and then have a minus one point four one point four point differential. Like, is this the best two and eight team we've had? <laughs> like, this is it's it's really fascinating. I mean, I I've killed them for I think their their offense half court offense has a lot of issues and things like that. But I'm just I'm just I want to keep watching them and see what's see if they're able to turn this around because it's they're not a two and eight team, like how they play their statistical profile. I mean, offensively they're, they're pretty bad, but like, they're just not that bad. Two and eight, like what I was expecting, you know, some of these other teams to be, but not that. has been better in the last week or so. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's a positive sign for them. But it's not translating to wins. Yeah. But the close games go either way and they're playing close games and they're, you know, rest of the season, they'll win their share of those. You, one would think. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, I'm watching Tyrese Maxey. Because I think that that guy, um, and I said this before the season, if he's good enough that that they feel like if there's a conversation about should we start Tyrese Maxey, I think that that's a great thing for the 76ers because he adds some off the dribble stuff that they just don't have and the threat to shoot. So I'm watching Tyrese Maxey. Um, uh, unfortunate circumstances caused him to play as much as he did in that one game and just go off. But man, did he go off and he's fun. So uh, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Thanks to Ben. Ben, thank you so much, man. I I really am glad that you got to come. It was a lot of fun. We're going to drag you back. Even if you're kicking and screaming, I I don't care. We've got, we've got team alignment here on Nerder She Wrote. So we'll work together on you. Uh, Don't forget guys, go to cleaningtheglass.com. Ben is doing really, really great work. And getting rid of a lot of the white noise that's in statistics right now, throwing out garbage time and and just this. I mean, it's useful statistics rather than just numbers. And check out that X and O's course. Learn basketball. Learn dash basketball dot com. Go sign up. uh, Check it out and let me know what you think. I think I'm going to check it out and uh, and I'll keep you guys posted on it until next week. For Mo, for Seth, I'm Dave. We'll talk to you soon.